Uh, Malcolm Honline is in uh, Israel. He's in the Holy Land. He's on a limited schedule, so we'll get to our weekly update. Uh, weekly update, 7.40 Eastern Time, every single Friday morning here at JM in the AM. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update from Israel. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you, as always, and especially here from gorgeous Yerushalayim, overlooking the old city and the Temple Mount and thinking of all of you back home waiting to come. Well, I mean, it's supposed to be 17 degrees here tonight in the New York area, so uh, we'd very much like to join you there. And certainly think of us when you're walking around in shirt sleeves and enjoying the incredible weather of Jerusalem. I don't know how the weather was in Saudi Arabia, but it's pretty well known that you and a delegation uh, were in Saudi Arabia this week. What can you tell us about that journey, Mr. Honline? That we were in Saudi Arabia this week and had a good, a good visit. Um, important, but the importance is to build a long-term relationship, which is why we don't discuss it. Um, uh, aside from the fact that it happened, there were high-level meetings, including with the head of the World Muslim League, Sheikh Halisa, and government officials. Um, and uh, I think the delegation felt it was very worthwhile. Can we can we do? I mean, you did this for me off the air, which I greatly appreciate. Can we do a drop of the philosophical piece? How it really is unbelievable, and those who are I don't know my age, your age, other I guess generations as well. Um, you know, so many of us find it so hard to believe the way the world has has developed now in 2020 and the way people uh, in certain countries think of Israel and Jewish delegations, etc. I am assuming that none of that was lost on you. And obviously it wasn't. I mean, I've been in Saudi Arabia before on alone, and um, but I've, I've seen in the region the changes that are taking place, the, the fact that uh, our delegations and our leadership is able to visit Muslim and Arab countries that the uh, tolerance levels, the acceptance levels are, are different, and that there are factors in the region that bring people together, and negative factors like Iran, the terrorism, violence, and seeing Israel as the most positive force in the region. Uh, sometimes it's alienation from the West and the feeling of insecurity about whether they can rely on the West and look for, for allies. Um, but there's also a recognition on the part of religious leaders in the Middle East and others that of the commonality of interests and that the um, issues that have bogged them down till now, and we see it in regard to the deal of the century, where the support for the Palestinian uh, obstinacy is waning, and the, the fact that they refuse to negotiate and continue to demand a no, the Arab League endorses it, but the individual countries have been uh, have taken somewhat different stances. I think that the um, opportunities they see, uh, whether they agree with every detail of them or, or part of the deal of the century, the fact is they're saying, look, this is a document, take advantage of it, sit down and negotiate. You don't like something, you'll talk about it. But uh, Abbas's continuing position of no negotiation, no discussion with Israel, he doesn't want to negotiate, he doesn't want to have to make any concessions, he wants everything to come from Israel. And for the first time we see that the pressure now is on him and saying that, that it's not Israel's obstinacy, and Israel doesn't have to make concessions in advance in order to get him to the table. They should come to the table 
and negotiate, and they'll make the reasonable people can reach accords. It won't be exactly what the proposal suggested or the details that it provided, but that the the framework is one in which people, reasonable people, I think, could find a good reason to come to the table and put everybody to the test. And I think that's what the Arab world is saying today. You see the statements that, well, there's good things there, there's basis for talks that just emerged in the last 48 hours from different people. Obviously, you know, it's a sensitive issue still, and they always worry about the street. But you see that the, that the intensity feeling and stuff is diminishing and that they're tired of the kleptocracy, of the refusal to move towards a democratic or a more meaningful structure where people's aspirations can be met. And I think that that is reflected in the in the broader region. The coming together of the Mediterranean initiative that we initiated 10 years ago, bringing many countries and more and more wanting to come in based on Greece, Israel, Cyprus, the, I think a Gulf initiative could be possible, too. And, you know, the prime minister visited uh, Oman, a delegation that visited Bahrain uh, and other countries, UAE. Uh, Israel has going to have a booth at the 2020 exhibition. So it's, uh, as you said, it, it is um, a changing world. It's not to say that everything's perfect or all of the animosities of the past are, are uh, gone, but certainly the... Uh, I think you can say that there are new opportunities here. Uh, One last word, and I I know that uh, you're limited in what you could say about it, but one last word about these delegations and trips, and this is aimed specifically at the younger people in our audience, and it might be a good idea for the older people to remind them of this over Shabbos and the weekend, and that is that you you in your career, 60s, 70s, you went to some pretty, you know, uh, pretty off-limit places, uh, as well, you know, meaning places you never thought you'd get to uh, in, in comparison to a trip like this, also a country that many thought you know, nobody would ever get to, et cetera, et cetera. But in those days, when you would go to a country like that, it was never in comfort. It was being investigated. It was being held up at airports. It was being given as much inconvenience to your schedule as possible. I asked you specifically about this trip, and you said, you thank God, logistically, everything went very smoothly. And I think that's also a very big difference. That when countries did, quote-unquote, welcome you in the past, it was always under a tremendous eye of scrutiny. Today, it's incredible the ease of passage with, with which you and a delegation has. Yeah, I visited a lot of country where, um, where there were questions about getting in and bigger questions about whether we'd get out. Right. And certainly going back to the Russia of, uh, when we got arrested or got arrested in some other places in the Middle East, um, detained, but thank God never in, in serious jeopardy. Uh, but it is true, you know, that, that when you go to Baku in Azerbaijan or Tashkent in Uzbekistan or Amati, you can wear a yarmulke in the streets and no one will bother you. Wow. But you can't do it in Berlin or Frankfurt or, 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 or uh, Paris today or certainly in areas of those cities. So, you know, there, there is a long history, some of it good, some of it bad, but uh, people have to really know the background in each circumstance, and you don't draw conclusions. This is not a one-shot deal, and, you know, it's people get their jollies because they get a headline, but I think that uh, what's more important is what we can help contribute. We're not a government. We're not, we don't have an army and an air force. We, we are represented a community that is engaged and involved and respected, and that respect 
can really build bridges. And, and I see the opportunities in many places today that really would have been unthinkable in the past where the doors are open to new thinking and, and new opportunities. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights report, three Syrian terrorists and four Iranian members of Iran's Revolutionary Guard were killed Thursday night in an air attack against a military compound near the international airport in Damascus. According to the report, a vehicle has also been hit in what seems to have been an attempt to stop a weapons delivery. I don't know what happened last night, Prime Minister Netanyahu said in a Friday interview. Maybe it was the Belgian Air Force. Uh, so we know that the pr- Prime Minister is obviously uh, you know, trying to be cute with that response. What do you know about this attack? Well, it's one of a series, and as you know, Israel has been acting on a consistent basis based upon the warnings that it has given and the assertions that uh, it will not tolerate, it cannot tolerate, the delivery of more and more advanced weapons being sent by Iran to um, to Syria and from Syria to Lebanon, where there is an immense uh, arsenal of, of missiles and other weapons already uh, aligned, and now with the guidance systems, much more precise weapons than uh, they ever had before. And I think the, the, um, the so Israel's actions are really preventative. Uh, they also, uh, there have also been strikes by America against uh, certain um, formations. And, and we're seeing an escalation overall in Syria, where the Turks are, are fighting and a warning that they will get into an all-out, uh, potential all-out confrontation uh, uh, because of the escalations in Idlib and other areas. So Syria today is um, really no man's land. It's a wild west, and the we see Iran trying to take advantage of it, both by shipping weapons for an attack, for some diversion, for something to to uh, hold over if, if they face some sort of an action uh, they perceive and want to activate their proxies. Uh, we see that Iran backed militias, uh, backed Hezbollah, is being brought into to Iraq to full, fill the void left by Soleimani's elimination, and that they they have uh, are now uh, working to guide the Iraqi militias until there's a new uh, leadership in the Quds forces, which Soleimani led since, what, 1998, I think. Um, And so the situation regionally is deteriorating on an ongoing basis. You have more and more involvement of of, uh, both outside parties and the inside uh, extremist groups, the al-Qaeda to the ISIS to the militias. And Israel's actions have to be such that they will deter any potential attack, prevent any intentional attack, and be able to respond strongly to one. We're going actually, uh, the President's conference conference here in Israel begins this week, Mr. Uh, Shem on Sunday, and one of the days we're spending up in the north to look at the terror tunnels, to look at the uh, situation there and in the Jordan Valley to understand what why it's so essential to Israel, what the uh, on-the-ground facts are, because from the media reports, you don't really understand how close things are, how uh, the troops are uh, really cheek to jowl often in cases. And when U.S. troops exchange fire with pro-Assad gunmen in northeast Syria, after a patrol car came under fire, you know, any of these things can escalate. And people are trying, I think, to keep it from getting out of hand. 
but it's a it's a tinderbox, and nothing would be surprising anymore there. Well, based on your statements, you don't think it was the Belgian Air Force. It does seem that campaign season brings out the Netanyahu sense of humor, and knowing how long campaign season is going to be now, I guess it'll be a year-round sense of humor. Two more uh, things on the Syrian situation. The first is... How much more, and, and it's funny because last week I asked you about the prior seven days, and now it's really escalated over the last week. In terms of the Syrian-Turkey conflict, how long will this continue or how deeper can it get before a third party feels they have to intervene? In the Syrian conflict? Yeah, with Turkey. Well, we have the third party interventions. You have a lot of countries involved, Turkey, Iran, obviously, Russia, um, the U.S., the EU, uh, Saudi Arabia, Maybe the UAE. Yeah, but I'm so talking about ta- multiple forces that are involved today, and, and that contributes to exactly that explosive situation that you described that it's not just a domestic internal civil war, it's one in which all these foreign powers are investing heavily and they keep raising the stakes. And we'd consider that military intervention? We would, we would call that military? Absolutely. Mil- really? And uh, also, speaking of going up north, uh, I don't remember what the exact figure was, but Syrians are fleeing Syria in hundreds of thousands of numbers. I mean, right. the last three months, I think it was half a million, if I, if I remember the number correctly. Uh, any of them ending up in Israel? No. Wow, interesting. They're going uh, to other countries. Um, they can't to get into Israel is very difficult, um, but both geographically and for other reasons. But, you know, they're going into to, uh, Jordan. Um, I think in lesser numbers now, much more into Turkey, uh, and that increases both the burden on Turkey, but also uh, their leverage of being able to release large numbers of refugees into Europe if they don't get their way. Right. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world and web at NahumSegal.com and the NahumSegal Network, and of course in the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is in Israel. He's executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. What do you think of the United Nations blacklist of Israeli companies that operate in the West Bank? Well, I, for one, take this very seriously because we've had histories of blacklists against Jews in the past. Uh, this one actually does not carry particular sanctions, and they can characterize it um, uh, and it says it doesn't qualify camp companies activities is illegal so they're now sort of backing off or qualifying the intent and the meaning of this uh, declaration but what it, the first thing it does is it shows the bias against Israel no other disputed area comes under similar uh, requirements and who are they punishing by removing Airbnb and bookings.com and Expedia by by stopping Angels Bakery and others from operating there they're hurting Israeli and Palestinian civilians who will not get access to stuff, who, who, as in the past, would be the essence stuff. It backfires all the time on them. And the back blacklist is a, a, something that we have long uh, sought to prevent. But they're succumbing just to the internal pressure within this body, the Human, Human Rights Council, which is, um, you know, supposedly was trying to reform itself and undergoing processes of, of renewal and it's really ridiculous because they, they don't take any meaningful steps toward the preservation of human rights. The only country they seem to go after is Israel, and you've seen Republicans, Democrats in the House uh, coming out against this incredibly biased report, as they called it, and and the link it to the support for the BDS movement uh, against uh, America's great ally. And I think that the... the um, uh, Others in the UN themselves, the UN itself, 
have worked to prevent this because they know that this is only going to uh, expose the bias, accomplish nothing. There were there were 112 companies named, I think 94 from Israel and 18 from the other countries, uh, uh, six or seven were U.S. that I mentioned, Motorola and General Mills were uh, two of them. These are food companies, uh, General Mills. This is a technology company that provides products that improves the lives of people, and this is what they're blacklisting. I think it'll, it will not have a long-term impact economically. I do think it's a, another political nail in the role of the U.N. Uh, uh, and the uh, really outrageous bias that is constantly uh, being uh, exposed. And you, you saw one reversal on the Palestinian attempt to get it through the Security Council. Uh, you saw that they abandoned that uh, request because they couldn't get the 9 out of the 15 votes in its favor, which is the minimum uh, that you require uh, when there is no veto by one of the permanent members of the U.N., so the U.S. Has, has long opposed it. U.S. came out very strongly against this ridiculous um, uh, resolution. It is a action of publishing a blacklist. And at this point, they only name it. But we know that the next step will be for BDS groups and these other bigoted and, and discriminatory groups to engage this and then to start to uh, name, uh, attack these companies, boycott these companies, uh, call for other actions. I think the American people will reject it, and the international community will reject it. It's a, it's a long, outdated uh, process, and it's it's certainly unjustified in this case. Um, a, a, any coincidence with the timing that Abbas was in this week? Like, is that just a total coincidence that this comes out during the week he's in New York? No, I think Abbas's visit was more geared to the other resolution that he was going to argue for for the Security Council to adopt a resolution against the uh, deal of the century, and actually thought that he would, I think that he would pass it, and uh, and uh, and the fact that they had to withdraw it because the opposition was so great to it, and they could not get the positive votes that he needed. So I think it was geared. His visit was geared for that, and then this came out simultaneously. It's it's been in the works though for a long, long time, and people have tried to withhold it. There were a lot of people internally in the council that didn't want it to be published, but the pressures were just great, and the extremist pressures uh, pushed the, the council, even though the leaders of the council assured us over the years that they were going to change, they were looking for ways out. Uh, this this was a, 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 just a locomotive on the move that they couldn't stop. And Ehud Olmert's behavior this week has been described, everything, everything from courageous to bizarre. Where do you think it is? Well, I understand why people would perceive it as bizarre. I mean, this is the guy, and he said that he was the last to negotiate and that, that he thinks is the only partner. It may be that Abbas, amongst the Palestinian leadership, would theoretically be partner, but he's proven not to be. He's proven to be an obstacle. He's proven that he doesn't want to negotiate. He walked away from Omar's deal, just as he walked away from Barack's deal. So I don't know whether this is an attempt to get relevance, an attempt to get media attention. I don't know what it contributed positively to, to the debate. Uh, I think the kissing embrace of uh, from the leader of J Street and others, it, it sends the wrong message. When a guy is being an obst- is so obstinate and standing in the way of the process, you think that the deal is too pro-Israel, so go to the table and make it more favorable to you. But you can't just stand there and scream and, and complain about it and not be willing to, to enter negotiations on it. 
Um, and Malcolm, this whole accusation, which I've heard a million times, that Israel loves to recycle its uh, public officials. Uh, that's, you know, when Olmert uh, came in, people felt that that's what was going on. Uh, is that really something that, that's unique to Israel? Or don't don't you see it in so many countries where there are too, too many people in government who just hang on too long? Who, who hang on too long or who get well, back again? Yeah, who, who, who are recent. I mean, we see it in our own country. You see right. it in countries around the world that they, you know, but these are people with experience and there's no reason why they shouldn't take advantage of their experience. And if they feel that they are suitable candidates, that they should be able to run. Uh, Mr. Ulmer, you know, ran into legal problems and stuff, which, uh, you know, took him out of office. And uh, he's smart, and he has, I'm sure he has things to offer. But because you can't make it in the political process, you create alternative channels or tracks, to me, is not an appropriate way. And uh, and he could disagree in Israel with the prime minister or with the deal. He can do an, an analysis of it. He did not come and sabotage the deal, as some people said. He didn't, right. he, he came to... Um, to express his views and to become to enter the fray, I think at a very uh, a sensitive and perhaps inappropriate time. And you said earlier, by the way, that Israel suspended its ties with the UN Human Rights Council. Is oh it, yes. And and why did it take till now? I would have thought this would have happened so long ago, or you or or what? Like, wouldn't this this is not the first time, as you pointed out, that they've been uh, you know the subject of their uh, resolutions? Why would it have taken till now for them to suspend ties with them? No, they, they suspended it a long time ago. Oh, it was suspended a long time. That's what it yeah, it wasn't over this. Right, no. I was wondering if it was in terms of this or not. Um, you know, we keep hearing in this. Uh, first of all, I read an article. I read an article today that said that the Netanyahu case be, between trial witnesses. I think they said over three hundred and thirty witnesses coming up uh, and appeals could take close to a decade. So, will we have the completion of the Netanyahu process first, or will we have a definitive prime minister first? What is what, what's the more what's the more likely scenario? Um, first of all, the the opposition to Netanyahu continues to talk about the increase in violence in Gaza since the deal of the century was announced and this whole thing with Bennett, you know, in the Knesset this week, whether it should be a diplomatic um, resolution or a military resolution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just, just tell me, I know I asked you this last week, but tell me, is it a fact or not that, that ever since the announcement of the deal of the century, things are much hotter in Gaza? Because if yes, I don't think the, the media is really reflecting that. Well, we've had an increase in the number of the balloons, which are very dangerous. These are explosive balloons. They continue to fly into Israel even during this past week on, I think, Tuesday, Wednesday, other days that they uh, have uh, been uh, crossing and they land in people's homes and schoolyards and elsewhere. And the, the explosions could be hear, heard near some of the cities um, from explosive balloons that were launched over the area. And there are uh, negotiations um that have taken place or supposedly were taking place that uh, Hamas made an offer, even though they claim that they're not behind a lot of the the assaults. But the fact is that the, the situation there is intensifying. Uh, even today, I understand that the government gave a warning that the um, retaliation or some sort of a major exercise would not be tied to the election or inhibited by the election. Obviously, no prime minister wants to be seen going to war, but sometimes it's necessary even before uh, an election to take actions to stop this uh, constant harassment and um, and their very dangerous actions um, that are taking place along the border and have consistently been so even though they reach periodic accords then whenever the they want to raise the, the stake we see that um, 
they start to launch new attacks. They find new means. We know that they're still trying to import more and more sophisticated uh, weapons that some people were killed because they were trying to shoot off some weapons that they didn't know how, exactly how to operate. And um, uh, so the... the um, and, and you see that even the, the amongst the Palestinian people, a poll this week that showed that, as I recall, it was two-thirds uh, favored going back to um, some sort of a military or, or armed struggle, uh, in, in, uh, and especially in response to the U.S. Uh, initiative. And this was a poll that was done just in the last few days. I think 95% of Palestinians rejected the plan. And I think 40% of Palestinians versus 60 uh, support a two-state solution, and 60% oppose it. So they're they're playing to popular sentiment. Uh, there is still talk of of an election in the Palestinian authorities uh, areas, but the um, it's a battle for for support and for recognition. And at the same time, uh, you know, this, this is all done to leverage their their positions. It's it's very tense there, and the people in the south in Israel south, you know, reach the limit about what they what how often they can tolerate these uh, the periodic rockets and the attacks on the border and the uh, balloons, which I know the world takes lightly, but yeah. but should not is a very dangerous. They're always calling for new elections. Is is this any more serious for the PA than than it ever has been? I mean, is this any anything? It may not be more realistic any more realistic right. than the previous. Yeah, and, that's what I meant. And efforts which have come to, I know, which have come to, to naught. Right. So I, I don't see, and I don't see any candidate that really can rally the people, um, you know, in a unified way that, uh, you know, can offer new hope or new new leadership or aspirations. Um, sort of sounds that, like, sort of sounds like nobody wants a job. You know? Well, it, no, there are people who want a job, and each one has their own militias, and, and you know, it's it's a fractionated society, very tribal, um, and you have uh, different leaders in, ge- in geographic regions. So I think an election could be very explosive and very divisive. And obviously there's also the kleptocracy people who have vested interest in continuing the process as it is because they're making money, their families are making money, and even though the pilot people don't benefit from it. Right. All right, finally, speaking of divisive elections, we'll end with this. <laughs> the election's coming up March 2nd. You're in Israel, and now you've been there quite obviously off and on, we know because of Saudi Arabia, but off and on for, you know, for a little bit of an extended visit for for the visits you usually have to Israel, are you getting any more of a sense of the strategy we discussed last week that that Prime Minister Netanyahu is simply trying to to keep alive this idea that of course annexation is coming down the road, of course we're going to take care of this and really court the right wing with it, or are they not falling for that, or are they not believing him? Uh, is it going to cost him at the polls? Because if he would have annexed, he certainly would have attracted people that he uh, cannot attract now. You know, without a you know a firm and hard commitment on it. it, it what have you seen regarding uh, that strategy of the election uh, this week? I would say all of the above <laughs> are, are are relevant to one degree or another. There, you know, there is a lot of skepticism. People are very concerned that the election will be inconclusive. Yep. Uh, the latest polls I saw today showed 57 for the uh, left-leaning uh, plus Arab bloc and 56 for the right-leaning liquid bloc. Um, the the talk of those who say they will join, won't join Bennett, saying he won't go with the blue and white after others thought 
you might break away. Lieberman right. still playing a key role, but saying he he wants he wants this to be a conclusive election, and therefore would would probably join a coalition. It's it's certainly uncertain, but I will tell you, I do not find people obsessed with the election. It's it's almost marginal in discussions with people. That and you know, after the third time in the year, I can understand that completely. It doesn't mean they're not interested or concerned or won't go to the polls. I think they will. But I don't think that they see that there's a difference between now and the last time that would motivate them to go and say, well, there's a new candidate, a new spirit, a new something. Uh, and there are articles coming out that are very critical of Gantz's leadership style. There are obviously there's tons of criticism of Netanyahu and had the legal developments uh, almost every day, something that comes out. Um, I don't find people excited and and rallying in the, uh but the political mechanism is certainly working hard and blue and white has young people out uh, canvassing i'm sure we could has them there bb has been attending rallies uh almost constantly um and i'm sure gans has been doing the same along with his uh, his partners so it'll be very interesting to see. It's only 10 days off, and yeah, I don't think I mean, anybody could easily bet their wages on what the outcome will be. I mean, this, this is two weeks from Monday. This is right around the corner. And by the way, campaign, campaign BB, much more fun than diplomatic BB. I don't know. If you know. That's what they're saying. And people <laughs> saying he's going to adopt it year-round. But, you know, his his comments, is, uh, and then there are all sorts of, you know, Internet things, some yep. of which are really quite funny, some of them pretty nasty. Um, but like in America, you know, the, the campaign is usually parallel, and they often have American expe- experts who come here. Right. Uh, I don't know that it really works. The dynamic is the same in Israel. But, you, you, you know, you don't get a sense from taxi drivers what the outcome is going to be yet. Right, that's for sure. All right, we uh, promise to get you out on time, and we are. Enjoy Shabbat in Yerushalayim. Uh, next week you're in, uh, Thank you. you're in Yerushalayim or the Diaspora next Friday? I am in Yerushalayim next week. Our, media, our conference ends uh, late Thursday and, night. And hopefully you and, will be able to join us, correct? I, I hope so. Thank you. We will do so. Thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations, joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. And, of course, I thank him.